Uh, If you have a Bible, please join me in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one into your hands. Raise your hand high when you get it. Feel free to keep it and, um, or leave it in your seat when you're done. Pastor Andy will bring it. Raise that hand high. Matthew 6. So as we have paused the Gospel of John, we are continuing but getting closer to the end of this series that we're in called Ecclesia Features of a Faithful Church. We are taking time in this doctrinal series to see not everything the Bible has to say about the local church, but some key features that Jesus puts before us that he expects of us to be faithful in. And so we've been looking at many different topics, and most recently, last week, Slaves of Christ. We turn our attention this week to the topic of generous giving. And so if you would, look with me at Matthew 6. I'm going to read verses 19 through 24, pray, and we'll get to work in the word this morning. Jesus says to us, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves Do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, this is the word of Christ. Let's look to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you obeyed the Father when you came and took on human flesh and lived in our place, atoning for our sins on the cross and raising for our justification and more. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have poured out your spirit upon us to indwell us forever and that by your spirit and your word, we can glorify and honor the Father. Lord, as we think about your body, your temple, your bride, the church, this morning we want to think well and wisely about what you say in your word regarding especially giving. And so, Lord, we need your help. There is all manner of false teaching, misunderstanding, and bad perspectives. And so we pray that by your word and with your word, you would correct any false thinking strengthen true thinking, and give us more biblical thinking on how to approach the handling of the possessions that you give to us. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Why do we give money to church? Not sure if you've ever taken time to think about that. Is that just a tradition that we've adopted and it's good for the church and so therefore we give? Why do we give money to the church and and, and should we even give to the church? That is the main question and perhaps more of what we're looking at this morning about being a 
a feature of a faithful church. But questions I have is, when I was in my 20s and I was in my living room and there was a fellow 20-year-old guy standing in my living room and he told me that he just tithed to himself um, to make himself better for the church, is, is that right? Is that something that you can do? Are you supposed to tithe to yourself? If that even means anything, it doesn't. Uh, when you hear of ministries that are always begging for money and doing massive fundraisers, is is that right? Is that Jesus' heart for how we approach finances in a local church? When you hear it taught that if you give to God, he's going to give back to you great and abundant riches, is that right? Or when you sit in a church and you never hear money discussed, especially giving to the church, is that right? And maybe you never give to the church. Is that right? Why do we give money to the church and should we even give? This is an important understanding because of so much misunderstanding that is out there. So if you're taking notes, I suggest you take a picture. Here are the outline this morning. Here's our first point this morning. Point number one, why you should never, ever ever, ever give because of the prosperity gospel. You should never give anyone anything because of the prosperity gospel. So we need to do away with the false understanding of resources in the church. Then we'll move to point number two, why you should give. That's a moral imperative. Why you should give generously to your church to store treasure in heaven and we'll look at Matthew 6 which I just read a few moments ago and then for your viewing pleasure we have many slides and charts and graphs so point number three 14 yes 14 reasons why Jesus calls you to give generously to your church and then not to overwhelm you point number four five biblical principles to guide generous giving. And then point number five, the ultimate reason to give generously is to cultivate thankful worship in the gospel. Now, let me say something up front. You might be um, somebody who's investigating the claims of Christ. And you come in here and you're hearing, uh, maybe you're here for the first time and you're hearing a pastor open the Bible and, and read scripture Jesus's words about laying treasure in heaven and talk about giving and then maybe you begin to roll the eyes of your heart like oh here we here we go again friend you need to understand something that there is wrong and bad and false teaching on giving that permeates our society that's what my first point is going to tackle and I'm going to strongly uh, assume that you have been impacted and affected by false teachers out there that have tainted your perspective on what giving is. And for all of us, we are not immune to the false teachings of the prosperity gospel. So point number one, here's a reason why you should never, ever, ever, yes, three evers, never, ever, ever give and that's because of the prosperity gospel. Why am I talking about the prosperity gospel? Because when people hear a sermon about money or giving, 
they tend to bristle, not everybody, but some do, they tend to bristle for one of two reasons. One, money is their God, and they don't like their God fiddled with. And two, the lies and deceptions and horrible wake of destruction of the false prosperity gospel. Those vain in the forehead, crazy-eyed, slick-talking TV preachers. You see, here's what the prosperity gospel is. This is why you should never give. The prosperity gospel is an empty pocket full of lies, except the lined pockets of the wolves in sheep's clothing that are its pastors, preying upon the itching ears of those who love materialism, preying upon those who don't know their Bibles very well. Remember what I've told you in the past. Satan uses... Um, the Bible to tell lies, and he'll tell you 99 truth to tell you one lie, and 98 to tell you two, and so on. That's what these guys do. It all sounds very biblical, but it's not. They prey upon the poor, the destitute, the hurting, and the downcast. And here's how the, the false prosperity gospel works. It, well, it goes by different names, sowing seeds of faith, the word of faith, positive confession, health and wealth gospel, name it and claim it and more. And what this false gospel does is it changes the gospel by adding to the gospel and undermining the gospel, claiming that God wants to give you total prosperity now, total health and wealth now. They take what the Bible says about glory in the hereafter, in the new heavens and new earth, and bring it into the present, and twist what it means along with other texts. And what they teach you is this, you need to activate, you need to name it and claim it. You need to claim those promises with faith and prayer. But faith and prayer are redefined for these false teachers. Faith is not a um, self-abandoning, self-denying, cross-bearing trust in Christ. No, faith is like a spiritual power you have. That you make God do what you want God to do. He's like a spiritual genie. And so you believe it. And if you believe strong enough and hard enough and, have, and powerful enough and most confident enough, if you believe right, you're going to make God do what you want. And prayer, then, is, is not a, a humble supplication on your knees before the Lord as a, as a beggar. No, prayer is like spells and incantations said the right way and repetitions to demand and command from God, again, the spiritual genie, to do what you want. And their key teaching is that you need to have material wealth and health now, and that shows that God loves you. And other things. But you know how you get it? You also have to give abundantly to their ministries. You gotta sow those seeds of faith. You gotta have, make that positive confession. Speak that word of faith. Sow those seeds. And if you give to their ministries, then God will give back to you a hundredfold riches. And so these poor people give, they tell God what to do, and then the false teachers get rich. And God doesn't do what they're asking him to do. So then you go back to these false prosperity preachers and you didn't get healed and you didn't get the cash in your bank account and they're going to tell you why. You know why? It's your fault. 
It's your fault because you did not have enough faith. You doubted. It's your fault because you were not strong enough. You didn't pray the right prayer. You didn't say the right combination of words to get God to do what you want. And so you get blamed for it. And it goes on and on under extreme hype and pomp and weird biblical sounding language. And the result is that if someone actually was a believer who somehow got sucked into and culled into this, this false teaching, their faith gets shipwrecked. Because God never does what these false preachers are promising he will do. And the false preachers tell them the problem is with them. That is, the person who doesn't have enough faith. And so the person who actually was a believer and got sucked into this begins to think, it turns out I'm probably not a Christian because God is not prospering me the way that he's prospering me. And they begin to think that and doubt their faith all the while they're getting robbed. And what about false converts? Especially as this prosperity gospel just sweeps through South America and Africa and into the Middle East region and more. This prosperity gospel, as it goes through false converts, it immunizes them and inoculates people to the true gospel of Jesus. And like a forest burned over, when the true gospel comes, there really isn't life left for them. And just so you know, John 16, Jesus says, you will have tribulation in this life. In 1 Peter chapter 1 is this beautiful poetic passage that speaks of the necessity from God of us being grieved by various trials so that our faith is purified. Even the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 pleaded with Jesus three times to take away the thorn in his flesh. The Apostle himself could not cast out or heal his sickness. He couldn't cast out the demon, the thorn in his flesh, because Jesus appointed it. So the prosperity gospel is false gospel because it turns the gospel into idolatry. Self-seeking, self-absorbed, God-dishonoring idolatry. It's a man-made perversion of biblical Christianity, and it floats in the air so that when a church gathers to look at the word and talk about giving, it's, you have to kill this false doctrine first to get, away, get out all that dross so we can get to actually the beauty of what Jesus says regarding why we do give to the church. You see, the true gospel is not that Jesus died to make you healthy and wealthy. No, the true gospel is that the second person of the Trinity became flesh for us, Jesus Christ. Truly God and truly man, and Jesus made himself a slave by humbling himself, we saw last week in Philippians 2. Living his life in perfect loving obedience to the Father, doing what the Father said, not telling the Father what to say. Jesus lived a life of suffering, died on the cross for our sins, bearing its penalty as our substitute, raising from the grave for our justification, and poured out his spirit so that we can repent of our sins, renounce them, believe this good news, and be saved from God's eternal wrath and condemnation in hell. And as followers of Jesus, we are now called to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him as we spend and be spent 
for the Lord. So don't give to the church to get material health and wealth. And don't believe that false gospel. The heart of the biblical gospel is a God who humbled himself so that we could be humbled in him and more. So then leads to point number two then, why should, why you should give generously to your church to store treasure in heaven. Look again with me at Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You, says Jesus, cannot serve God and money. Well, I guess Matthew 6, it turns out Jesus is the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel. Not to accumulate for yourself and hoard for yourself on earth. No, Jesus says, do not lay up treasure for yourself on earth. Instead, well, reason being, it will be eventually taken from you and you cannot take it with you. Randy Alcorn, in his excellent little book called The Treasure Principle, says you cannot take it with you, but you can send it on ahead of you. When you read through the New Testament, especially the gospel accounts, the words of Christ, you discover that the topic of money and possessions and wealth and riches was one of Jesus' most discussed subjects. And of the many places we could turn, Matthew 6 shows us why. Here's why Jesus was always going after money. It's because people, not in the abstract, you and me, we are prone to worship and serve money by devoting our lives to its acquisition, to its pursuit, and to its hoarding. We turn money into a lowercase g god as a god of security because our possessions and bank accounts are big enough or we turn it or end we turn money into a god of pleasure by using our resources on ourselves to make ourselves happy. People are prone to either sin to get money or sin to keep their money. Left to ourselves, we are all prone. But Jesus doesn't leave us to ourselves. And so he goes after all of those heart idols that our hearts tend to produce to go after them and slay them so that our treasure might be true, namely, Jesus himself. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he's going to hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In other words, if Jesus truly is your master, money won't be. But if money is truly your master, Jesus won't be 
even if you claim to follow him. Why? Verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you see, this is a matter of Jesus going after our hearts, our devotion, what you truly love, to what you're truly devoted to. But here's what's amazing about this text. You notice what Jesus isn't doing. Jesus is not prohibiting treasure acquisition. Did you notice that? Jesus isn't prohibiting treasure. He's prohibiting where you store it. You see that? He wants you to have it. He wants you to have treasure. He doesn't say, don't lay up treasure and then go on to his next topic in the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, he tells us, don't lay it up on earth, lay it up on heaven. So we should all be laying up treasures in heaven. Jesus is, after all, essentially advising us on an eternal investment strategy. Jesus wants us to have treasure in the right place, flowing from a right heart that treasures God. And, and, and when he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, there's an implication there. There's a spiritual safeguard. Jesus is letting us know that we, that our hearts follow, rather, where our treasure goes. And so if we hoard money, it's going to harden our heart against God. But if we give, we will grow in grace, grace because our hearts remain anchored in heaven. And here's the amazing thing. Where do your possessions come from in the first place that he's telling you to lay up? Him. This is simply laying up for ourselves what belongs to God. For what doesn't belong to God. It all does. Last week we saw, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. So adding to the notion of being servants and slaves from the past few weeks, we can add to the notion of being stewards. Another often used term in the New Testament. A steward is a house manager who manages the possessions of someone else. God calls each of us stewards. Everything we have, everything you are, is His. Anything you acquire, anything you accomplish, He gives you the power to do so. So this is what's amazing about Christ's logic in Matthew 6. He's telling you to give to God by laying treasure in heaven the things that belong to God and don't belong to you in the first place. It's like the Father is saying, enjoy using them for my kingdom, and I will eternally reward you for doing so. It's a win-win, amazing deal. It's why martyred missionary Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or again, as Alcorn said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead of you. But the question remains, in Matthew 6, what exactly is the treasure, and how do you lay it up? Uh, I mean, does it mean that you, you uh, clean your house and put stuff in a box and put it out on your front porch at night and wake up in the morning and hope it's gone and you laid it up in heaven? 
Like, what does it actually mean to lay your treasure in heaven? What is the treasure? Well, in terms of the treasure, I'll just say this. Scripture never explicitly tells us. It speaks of different rewards and awards that we can uh, get when we see Christ face to face. But the bottom line is, it really doesn't matter what the treasure is. It realize who gives it to us, namely Jesus. And what he gives us is always infinitely better than we can possibly imagine. But how do you lay up treasure in heaven? And here it is. By giving generously to your church. How do you lay up treasure in heaven? By giving generously to your church. And now, you might begin to start to push on what I just said. Well, let me show you biblically why I say that. Point number three, and here it's going to get fun, 14 reasons why Jesus calls you to give generously to your church. In a few moments, a slide's going to go up, and you can have your phones ready to take a picture. But why can I say laying up treasure is equivalent to giving generously to your church? How can I say that? Why can't you just give whatever you want to whoever you want, whenever you want, and that's laying up treasure in heaven? And why can't the church just be optional or get a small percentage or secondary or tertiary? Let me tell you why I'm making this claim. Then you're going to see it with 14 reasons. Here's why I'm saying laying up a treasure in heaven is giving generously to your church. Every command in the Bible from the book of Acts on, all giving is always to and through a local church for gospel ministry. In your Bibles, from the book of Acts to the book of Revelation, every command that we're given to give is always to your local church and then spreading through your local church. And so I'm summarizing that, giving the claim, laying up treasure in heaven in the gospel accounts, as the canon unfolds and develops, we discover means primarily laying up treasure in heaven through generosity to your church family. Now, we live today in a proliferation of endless requests to give our money to all manner of parachurch ministry without end. Just because the opportunities exist does not necessarily mean it is wise or right to give to those opportunities, nor am I saying it's necessarily foolish and wrong to give to parachurch ministries you probably should. But what I'm saying is it requires tremendous biblical wisdom and knowledge to truly navigate what you say yes to and what you say no to. And what we see is that if you do give outside of your church, the preponderance, well, 100% of the weight of Scripture is on giving to your local church so that you can give through your local church to ministries such as those. Again, every command from the book of Acts on, all giving is always to and through a local church for gospel ministry. Why? Why is this the mind of Christ? What can we detect? Because what he doesn't tell us to do is to just go freelance generosity and do whatever we want. It's pooled together. We pool together our money and our generosity based on the Bible to do greater gospel good together 
than we could individually. One of my favorite ways I've heard of a church's pooled resources is referred to as a gospel mutual fund. A person or family on their own can do much gospel good, absolutely. But when you consider the impact of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars versus a few thousand dollars, I think you can see the idea. We together can employ additional pastors, send families overseas, uh, put a group of us on short-term missions, send people and help supplement biblical seminary training, sending others to other types of trainings, Think about the fire and the amount of good that we are able to do to give thousands and thousands of dollars to people in our church family and not in our church family whose homes were burnt and lost and destroyed and possessions and more. Praise God for that. That's his gift through us because we were generous together and gave and that's all of God's glory. I think you see the point. But again, the question still stands I asked at the beginning why do we give to our churches and should we even give to our churches well now here's the first slide here are six tangible benefits tied to generosity in the church on the left this is the summary statement on the right are all the many New Testament passages from which these principles are taken so no Giving to the church is not just a, uh, a random tradition. It's not a money grab by uh, me and the pastors or any churches. It's actually an act of obedience. And here's why this encourages me when I, when I look at the slides and we're going to walk through this. Because it's easy when you faithfully give on a regular basis Maybe you have automatic withdrawal. Maybe you, you write the check and you put it in the offering box or however you go about it. It's easy to do it because you have a sense of duty, but you lose sight of why we give. So church, be excited and rejoice about all of these reasons that when you give generously to the church, these are all the things that we together collectively are trying by God's grace to do much gospel good for. Number one, we together have a shared responsibility for the physical and administrative realities of our shared positions. Who does this piano belong to? It belongs to you, the church. How about this building? Uh, almost a hundred years of forebears before us, faithful to bequeath this to us, but this is now ours and our stewardship. Same with the dirt across the street. We gotta steward that dirt. So we, we steward all the things that we have, but it includes taxes and gas and water and software and internet and more, all of these things. When you give, we are coming together to care for all of these things. Praise God for that. Next, a rifle through a number of verses here. You can see we have a shared responsibility to pay our pastors. Paul argues and. 1 Corinthians 9, that those who preach the gospel should get their living off the gospel. You can look those verses up. We, we have a shared responsibility for each other to meet one another's needs within the church. Last Christmas Eve, we were all very generous with, the, with our SOS fund. And what we're able to do is we're able to help ends meet 
pay for groceries, medical bills, uh, help with rent, help with all manner of needs that arise within our own congregation. We're able to help each other out because we have pooled our resources together to do gospel good. Praise God for that. Or, or number four, we have a shared responsibility to meet needs of other gospel churches. Did you know that? We have a shared responsibility from Scripture to help meet the needs of other gospel churches. And so when, when Paul writes, for example, in 1 Corinthians, the church in Jerusalem was uniquely impoverished. They were facing a famine, but the churches in, in, uh, in Corinth pooled together their, their resources in their abundance to give to the church in need. And Paul talks about how one day when they have abundance, they can give to you when you're in need. A church cannot have a siloed mentality from other churches. There ought to be other gospel churches in town that if they have a need, that we can go and help them. What, what for example, if we hear of a good a church plant taking place in Page, a healthy church that's wanting to, to cultivate and spread the gospel and more, and, and, but they're in financial hardship and the family is having a hard time making ends meet to do their work and they could really use an associate pastor. And, and what if we were able to, to help them in Page by giving them a large sum of money to help support another pastor or more? We have a responsibility to look to help meet other needs. Or, or next, number five, we have a shared responsibility from the Bible to meet needs and do good works in our local community. And so we can take our resources together and serve people who don't yet know Jesus, to meet tangible needs, to show the love of Christ, and more. Maybe after school programs, and, and more, and more, and more. And lastly, from Scripture, we have a shared responsibility to support church planting, church strengthening efforts, i.e. missions. Missions. Paul was supported, the apostle, on his missionary efforts, his church planting efforts from other churches. And so when we pool together, we're able to support Jacob and his family and more to do gospel work as, as they go out. So church, when you give, don't just give out a sense of duty or routine, but give recognizing that what you, between you and the Lord, have chosen to give to the church pools together our resources so that we can do tangible benefits. And, and what you see here is all of those passages of Scripture along all these different categories, and there are more, show us the answer is yes, we do give to our churches, and here's many reasons why. But there's more. The next slide. The next slide if those were tangible physical benefits, this one is eight spiritual benefits tied to generosity in the church. Jesus and his apostles don't just teach practical reasons why we give. There's also um, food for your soul reasons that we give. You can look these up at a later time. We've already seen these first few. When you give... It's like a spiritual discipline to show that God is your treasure, not money. And so you lay treasure up in heaven. We know from Acts 20, quoting Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
So somehow in God's economy, when we give what he has given to us, we are blessed. And blessing is not the abstract hashtag on your Instagram account. Blessing is actually God's favor, his smile upon us. So there's some unique smile of God upon you and us corporately when we give. I love what Paul says in this next one, number four, in Philippians 4, I'll summarize it for you. He was in dire need. And so the Philippians gave out of poverty to him to support him in his ministry. And he was so thankful for the finances and the material goods they gave him. But what he was more thankful for, as thankful as he was for the things they gave him, he was more thankful, what he says, the fruit that accrues to your account. What is he talking about? He, like a spiritual father, received the goods from them. Thank you. But then he said that what they gave said more about them in relation to God And so he was like a proud father, so to speak, of how generous they were in their poverty to give to him, showing how strong they were in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we give a spiritual benefit is it cultivates spiritual fruit and maturity. And these last four on this list, when we give, it evidences that God is working in and through us. We praise him. Again, our our efforts are boasting and being able to give thousands upon thousands of dollars to the fire relief and to those in our church and outside of our church, the boasting is in Jesus, not us. Praise God for that. It, it evidences of the fruit of the gospel in your life. We'll see in the last point that it's the gospel that moves us to give. We're going to see also that when we give, the relationship between unity and prayer and more, when we give... When we give, it creates unity and prayer among giving and receivers. It actually not only unifies a local church, it unifies churches with churches. Imagine the relationship. Think of our beautiful relationship with our brothers and sisters at Red Lake Grace Bible Church. Love our saints there. And imagine the relationship with that hypothetical page illustration I gave. It creates unity among churches And lastly, an eighth spiritual benefit, it leads others to thanksgiving and worship of God. Listen, rifling through these, these are 14 different areas and ways that our New Testament speaks of different reasons why we give, what happens when we give, and more. Praise God that God uses means. And the means, in this case, is what he gives you to give to others. That's what his means is. Let's move to this next point, point number four. Move through this fairly quickly. So now maybe you're asking, maybe maybe you're under conviction because no one has ever taught this to you before, and you've never understood it, and so you've never given to the church. Or maybe you're beginning to realize that oh, actually giving to the church is more to it than I realized. So how do I give? What do I give? What you're going to discover is that, again, it's all about your heart. Christ cares about your heart. Five biblical principles to guide your generous giving. Number one, we are to give willingly, not forced. And I would add, not manipulated. We are to give Will we decide between us and the Lord, 
freely, not under compulsion or constraint, not under manipulation, not force, but willingly. Next, maybe you know this first, God loves a cheerful giver. We're to give cheerfully, not begrudgingly. Bad attitudes taint your cash (laughs) when you give to the church. It's to Jesus, it's our hearts and why we give and the attitude that we give that matters. Number three, we give regularly, not unplanned. I remember in college that um, there was friends who, under the guise of being very, very pious, when they got the church, they didn't manage their money, so the dude didn't know how much money he had in his wallet, so he'd just pull his wallet out, and if there was money in it, ah, that's what the Lord has provided, and then he would give to the church, 17 bucks, or there'd be no money, and then he wouldn't give anything. Well, what we see biblically, the principle is that you give regularly, not unplanned, that we actually sit down, calculate, and make a plan prayerfully between you and the Lord, you and your spouse and the Lord, of what you're going to give. So willingly, cheerfully, regularly, and then number four, we give from our first fruits, not after Caesar and self. What does that mean? The principle across scripture is that the first of your crop, that portion of that is what goes to the Lord. Not a uh, sell portions of your crop, take portions of your crop, and then whatever's left over, then give that to the Lord. It's a principle of first fruits. So it's before taxes, not after, and before spending on yourself, not after. And lastly, we are to give generously, not stingily. Let's talk about that word means real quick. You see, when you give someone their wages, you're giving them what they are due, not more, not less. If someone is extravagant or opulent, opulent, you're giving them far more. It's even wasteful. And usually when someone is living extravagantly or receiving extravagantly, other people are being hurt by what's being given. That's not what generosity is. Generosity is going the extra mile, giving the extra bag of groceries, the extra night of food. It is giving more than what is needed or expected as a blessing. In the biblical principle, you can do a word study on the word generosity. We are to give generously. So, let me address two practical matters before we move to the final point. This is very practical for us. Point number one, have you noticed that I have not told you to tithe? And I'm sure that we can do a show of hands, and all of you have heard, you should tithe, that Christians tithe. I'm going to tell you the two reasons why you have not heard me tell you to tithe, and then I'm going to tell you to tithe. Here are two reasons why I'm telling you have not used the word tithe. Number one, we are never told in the new covenant to tithe. Never. A tithe means 10%, and it's a word taken from your Old Testament. But what we just saw in the five biblical principles, the closest that you get to any idea of an amount is the word generous. That's the closest you get to an actual concrete number. Jesus, in his new covenant, in the New Testament, does not give you a number. That's it. That's why you didn't hear me say you should tithe, give 10%. And here's the second reason why I think 
um, tithing as a very misunderstood word. The folk religion misconception of Old Testament Israel is that they only gave 10%. But they did not give only 10%. There were multiple tithes and more. When, when you add together across a year all that Israel was to give, they gave over 30%. Over 30%. And that does not count the temple tax that they were required to give to help upkeep the temple, and it doesn't count the free will offerings and sin offerings and drink offerings and cash offerings that they would give from their own goods on top of the Mosaic covenant warranted 30%. So when we say, well, Israel gave 10%, so you should give 10%, it's actually biblically inaccurate. So it's not a helpful way of understanding to think that I've given 10%, I've done my job. Old Covenant Israel gave over 30%. And so the reason I'm going after this is because when it gets thrown around that a Christian only needs to give 10%, and then that's all the Lord wants, as if that's what the New Testament taught, I hope you can see from Scripture how misplaced that is. And since most people give not from first fruits, rather they let Uncle Sam get his grubby gloves on at first, then what's left over of that 75%, we spend 60% on us, so that remaining percent is the part of the 10% we give to the church. And with all that said, um, 10% is a good place to start. <laughs> it often gets thrown around that where, where, if you have not made a practice of giving, where do you start? Most will agree, well, 10% is a good place from your first fruits. It's a great basement to start from. And here's a second very practical point before we move to the final point. This gets very practical to our shared life together as a church and what it means for us to have a budget. Think back to what I said earlier about a gospel mutual fund. And I think that is better than the word budget. Budget is not the best word to describe our pooled resources for the kingdom. We pool our resources as a gospel ministry funding plan. What we fund together is what we can do together. What we don't fund, we don't do. The reason I'm pointing this out is because if you have a budget mentality, you could mistakenly look at the weekly graph in my newsletter and say, oh look, we've exceeded budget. We don't need to give very much. I don't need to give this week because we've exceeded budget. But friends, it's not about meeting budget. It's about each individual being faithful before Jesus, laying up treasure in heaven so that we can collectively be faithful as a church generous to others. So if we don't meet budget, think about this, friends. Think about this. If we don't meet budget, our gospel spending plan, and yet we each have been faithful to the Lord in what he's given us to lay up to him, even if we miss budget, praise God. It's about faithfulness, not numbers. By the same token, you can have a church who meets budget, even doubles it, and is unfaithful because their heart motives were wrong, and they're giving to unbiblical ends for non-gospel purposes. So here's the perspective in this fourth point about to guide to give generously. We give generously together to fund gospel ministry together. 
So do you want to help advance the gospel as a family? Be generous in laying treasure in heaven with us. And that brings us to the fifth and final point. If you would join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's important for you to see this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 5. This final point is the ultimate reason to give generously. Now, I mentioned this to us last time. When God commands us to do something, we are required to obey. Praise God. But understand that all commands in Scripture are always preceded by appeals to the gospel. Our giving is motivated by the gospel. We give because of the gospel, because we have it. The ultimate reason to give generously, point number five, is to cultivate thankful worship in the gospel. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 5 to 15. The Apostle Paul is writing for a few chapters about giving to the church in Corinth, or how they need to think about it. Listen to these words. We're really going to focus on the last few verses. He says, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each, must, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now listen to this connection. This is, this is really dense. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you, because the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, that's a densely woven network of connections all around the topic of giving. What did he just say? In short, verse 10, God supplies you. Verse 11, we take those supplies and then we give generously what really was just his in the first place. When we give, verse 12, it meets the practical needs of others. But then in verse 12, when their needs are met, 
it lifts their eyes and their hearts to heaven to thank and praise God for his grace in their life of answering their prayers and meeting their needs. But then, as they're thanking God, they begin to glorify God because they start to think about those who just gave to them and met their needs. So then their eyes glorify God, and then they begin to look down at those who were generous and realize, you were generous to us because of your confession of the gospel. You're really saved. You help me understand who Jesus is more. Thank you for this gift. And then in verse 14, those who receive the gift begin to, it says, long for and pray for those who gave the gift. It creates unity in the churches, in this case, and the people. And that's why Paul, in this whole network and chain of events, simply says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Unity in the church, love of the brotherhood, meeting tangible needs, Jesus does those does those things and more through us by meeting each other's needs. That's why we're called to give. When you give generously, you become a worship leader. What an amazing, amazing thing that is. But that heart of giving is driven by the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. All giving, all generosity, all of it is simply a matter of doing a gospel demonstration of saying, this is what God is like. We worship and serve a self-giving, other-oriented, generous God who saves us and frees us to do and be the same because that's what it means to truly be new humanity in Christ and more. The heart motive behind any giving and all generosity is nothing less than the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you find that your heart is more tightly gripped do you find around your bank account, do you find that you are prone to lay up treasures in heaven? Friend, look to Christ and his gospel and be motivated to lay up treasure in heaven by giving as he leads so that his gospel might go in and through us and advance to see the lost saved and the saved built up to be more like him. What an expressible gift we've been given by simply being generous and trusting God. Amen? Lord, we thank you for the gift. You work through means, and one of your means is generosity. And so we pray, Lord, that we, as a church, would embrace what your word says. We thank you that we, as a church, have been faithful. You've entrusted to us much. Lord, we want to continue to be even more faithful. And so, Lord, we put ourselves into your hands and pray that you would continue to guide us to do great gospel good so that our boast is in you for your name's sake to bless many people. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.